Where do you go for the most important conversations in applied behavior analysis? The podcast is your source for insightful content, debate, and insights in the ABA field. Whatever your role, RBT, BCBA, C-suite, family member, or advocate, we'll get you to the heart of the meaningful issues in autism. Podcast is proudly hosted by the Council for Autism Service Providers. We are your hosts, Nagarito, Judith Urcity, Hallie Respondic, Nitesh Kumar, and Jonathan Mueller, and this is our podcast. Eric, thank you so much for coming on today. I know everybody is anxious to hear about accreditation and everything that you've been so hard at work with. So our first question is, who are you? Great question. So I am a behavior analyst and an administrator overseeing CAS's new accreditation program called the Autism Commission on Quality, also known as ACQ. Thanks, Eric. Can you tell us a little bit about why CAS decided to go on this accreditation journey and what the process was to get from why the need exists to launching this now? Yeah. So, well, I mean, quite simply, it's because the community demanded it. The community wanted CAS to start an accreditation program. And, you know, those conversations happened before I arrived. And so I arrived after CAS determined that, hey, the community wants this. And so they put out the ad for, for my position. And so what I have seen since I've started working for CAS is I've seen immense interest in what we are doing. I think there are folks who are hungry for this option. We're running our public comment period, for example, right now. And we've had really good participation from folks who are interested in what we're doing. And they have some really great feedback that we're currently incorporating and using to help calibrate our standards. But there's just a lot of interest. I think that's kind of why we started it. Eric, what are the pain points that you saw in our ABA field that that you think accreditation can address? That's an excellent question. It's also the reason why I decided to join CAS. Uh, So prior to joining last summer, I was an assistant professor and I'd served as an assistant faculty member in graduate training programs for ABA providers uh, for about a decade. And I saw what was happening in the field and where my students, where other students were going and the variability in quality was concerning. And so when CAS put out the ad for the new accreditation program, I decided to throw my hat in the ring and I left a comfortable tenure track position to try to work on this issue. I thought, you know, this is something that maybe I could contribute to. There are multiple pain points that I've seen. Um, I can give you a highlight of some of them that if you've heard me talk before, this may be a little redundant, but, you know, one of the issues relates to provider qualifications. And so Providers are out there that are claiming to practice ABA, but they may not necessarily have the appropriate credential to practice ABA. Now, that's not to say that there are there are not providers out there that don't have a credential that can do good ABA. That's certainly true. Typically, when we're looking at ABA practice, we do have a baseline credential we're kind of looking for for folks to have. And an example here, I think, with this issue, uh, which came up in my own research, in 2019, we published a, a study looking at how many people were claiming behavior analytic credentials through their NPI taxonomy selections. And we found that there were over 20,000 providers that claimed ABA credential, even though they do not have that credential, which essentially overinflates our field by over 40%. And if you think about it, you know, there's not many places where behavior analysts are listed in federal databases. And that's one of them. And it overinflates our field by over 40%. We did a, we were working on an update to that paper before I joined CASP and I had re-downloaded the NPI file, which is publicly available. And the issue had not improved. It was pretty much the same about two years later. Yeah, this is an ongoing issue. Another really uh, big concern, and this is something I've heard a lot over the last year uh, throughout my many, many conversations with various 
representatives from multiple stakeholder groups has to do with practitioner experience. And so about a third of all BCBAs, for example, have been certified for three years or less, and around half have been certified for five years or less. In other words, we have a very, very young field. This is something that I think we need to keep an eye on and is something that is potentially dangerous. Now, in terms of accreditation, I think one of the ways that we could potentially address that is by trying to support strong supervision, ongoing training, and quality assurance practices uh, within organizations applying for accreditation. The number of providers is also another huge issue. I don't know if you guys look at the, the job demand reports that are posted by the, the certification board, and I'm sure those of you that run your organizations know how hard it is to find good quality providers, or quite frankly, just to find providers at all. There's just not enough of us to be able to meet the need. And I did some napkin math on this where I was looking at some of the prevalence rates uh, for uh, children and adults diagnosed with autism. It's about, um, once again, napkin math here, about 2% of the population may qualify for a diagnosis based on some of the more recent literature that's out there. And if you take a look at that and you take a look at the number of at least BCBAs, who claim to work within the realm of autism, basically you have a situation where there's not enough of us to serve, there's not enough BCBAs to serve over 90% of the population that may qualify for an autism diagnosis, which is pretty a pretty big deal. Once again, that's not to say that, that everyone who qualifies for an autism diagnosis would want or even benefit from ABA. But it is still kind of a you know kind of a shocking statistic there. We're hoping to address that threat through our accreditation program by promoting these sensible caseload sizes because that's the problem, right? You have that situation there, and where there's not enough providers, and you have this huge need, and what happens is folks get overloaded. That doesn't necessarily lead to quality services. People get burned out really quick, and they 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 leave the profession. And so we want to try to address that through our accreditation program by promoting those sensible caseload sizes and careful treatment and discharge planning. Uh, that's some of the things we're going to be looking for there. Distribution of practitioners um, is another issue. And so once again, we have very few providers and the ones that we do have are kind of located in you know, a lot of the urban areas, but not necessarily some of the more rural areas, which still need services. And so there was a really interesting study that my, my colleagues conducted, uh, led by uh, Marissa Yingling, uh, Dr. Yingling over at the University of Louisville. And we found that in 2019, 55 of the 129 counties with the highest prevalence rates of ASD had no BCBAs. That's crazy. It's a lot of folks that could potentially be benefiting from our services that are not able to. And so what happens here is this leaves patients and caregivers with little or no choice amongst the ABA service providers that they have available to them. And so what happens is organizations have this position of power over these, over these, over these patients and caregivers which isn't great, right? So there's less of a focus on like, can you provide services versus can you provide quality and good services? And so we're hoping to address that issue by holding these organizations accountable through our accreditation by promoting standards that support patient rights and require organizations to measure outcomes that align with their stated goals. Uh, we think that's very important here. Accreditation of training programs is another issue. So prior to joining CASP, you know, I served as a uh, part-time accreditation administrator for the Association for Behavior Analysis International. We were trying to push for accreditation of training programs. I don't know if you guys know this, but ABAI has been accrediting higher education training programs, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral programs since the early 90s. And our field, I, I looked this up the other day for verified course sequences, and those are those course sequences that are required to sit for an exam. We have 330 um, ABA training programs at the master's level, and we have, I think it's around 30 accredited training programs. That's it. 
And there's been some real confusion just generally around what it means to offer quality training. For a while there, the VCSs were referred to as approved course sequences. And that, I think, gave the impression that, you know, somehow the certification board was approving the quality or, you know, the results that these program that these folks are putting out. But, and I think that's why they changed it to the VCS, a verified course sequence. But really the VCS or its precursor, the ACS, is really just a paperwork reduction strategy. It's a way for, you know, you, the certification board to be able to process your applications more quickly. It is not a signifier of the rigor or quality of a training program. And so I remember speaking to people generally about uh, ABI's accreditation and constantly running into that wall where it's like, we don't need accreditation, we have a VCS. And it's like, no, that's not the same thing. So there's a lot of education that still needed to go around that. Though, I mean, those are some of the issues. And you know, another, another potential issue related to training has to do with the quality and diversity of our training programs. And so with, within our training programs, you know, we have, uh, we have very few that are actually responsible for the majority of folks that are actually sitting for their certification exams. And so between 2013 and 2020, half of all BCBAs attended fewer than 10 training programs. And of those graduates, only 56% passed their BCBA exam on their first attempt. So think about that for a minute. The BCBA exam is an exam that measures minimal competence to independently practice ABA. The training programs that have prepared over half of the folks sitting for this exam, around 56% have passed an exam of minimal competence. This is a problem. We need to do a better job with our training programs. And I know the BACB and ABAI and other groups have been pushing for accreditation of training programs, and they've been making some moves to improve upon that, but it's going to take a little while. Um, and in the meantime, you know, organizations who are hiring these folks are getting folks who may not be as prepared as we would want them to be kind of out the gate. And because we're working with such a young profession, we may not have that supervision and mentorship structure in place to be able to offer the level of oversight and training that's, that's needed to really grow these folks and make sure that they're offering good services that have value to the patients that they're serving. It's been very interesting hearing all the statistics and the research. And I I think Jonathan and Hallie and Natasha, you guys can let me know. I feel like it's good to get this out. Yeah, I think I think the statistics are really alarming. And for me, data. I like data <laughs> to have it. There's, there's, there's like a short term and there's a, like a, a long term because everything that you described, I think accreditation absolutely addresses. But when, what I'm hearing is as we raise the bar, which we must do as a field in the short term, to medium term, that could actually mean fewer, less access to services for consumers. So I don't know, I, I, and I have no idea what the question in there is, but how do you how do you balance that? Actually, that's that's a really insightful question. I appreciate you asking that. A, a parent asked that of me uh, one of the first times I presented on the accreditation program. They said, you know, this sounds great, and isn't this just going to limit access to services? And there's already too few of you guys. You know, and I, I had to pause for a minute and I had to think about that. The goal here really is to not to limit access to providers, but to increase access to quality providers. Now, one of the approaches we're, we're taking with our accreditation program is we recognize that there's a high degree of variability in the quality of services that are out there right now. And we want everyone to be up here. We want them to be really high. And with the accreditation standards, especially for version 1.0 that we're working on, if we set the standards too high, not enough organizations are going to meet them. And so our standards committee, we had, we've had a lot of discussions around this about how we can ensure that we engage in a deliberate shaping process where we are trying to raise the field up, but in a way that's systematic. 
And so one of the one of the ways we're going to do that is by including within our standards recommended practices. Now the recommended practices, these are the things that are a little bit more of the high level stuff that we are encouraging organizations to do, but we are not going to score it for accreditation. And so the idea here is to put it on the radar of organizations applying for accreditation and let them know that, hey, we're looking at this right now and we're gonna collect some basic data, like, you know, are you doing this or not? But it's not gonna account towards your accreditation. We're then gonna use that data to see where the field is at for future versions of the standards uh, to determine, you know, are we now ready to include this recommended practice as an actual standard? And in this way, we can have a make a data data informed decision about, you know, how we are deliberately shaping the quality standards that we expect from our service organizations. Eric, how are the standards developed, and how do they compare to best practices in standards developments? Excellent question. I'm uh, I'm really excited you asked this because I'm very proud of the standards process that was used here. We spent a long time developing the standards and as, as it happens, it takes a long time to follow um, best practices when developing accreditation standards. So what we did was we chose our standards based on feedback we received from hundreds of patients, caregivers, providers, business owners, payers, researchers, and others. We made sure that our standards were inspired by professional guidelines and ethical codes of conduct published by you know, recognized professional organizations and societies and associations. We drafted those standards and, and when we were drafting them, we made sure that they were informed by findings from the scholarly work published by respected researchers and authors who have involvement in the field. From those drafts that were created by a work group, they were brought to a standards committee. And we had a 19-member standards committee that represented consumers, providers, business owners, payers. And that group met bi-weekly and actually still is meeting. We've been meeting bi-weekly since uh, last June. We've also been guided um, by an expert in accreditation with over 25 years of experience, uh, Gary Carneal, who's done a wonderful job at keeping my feet out of multiple bear traps as we try to navigate around and figure out how to do this. And he's brought multiple accreditation programs to market. So he's really been able to make sure that we you know, stay aligned with those best practices that you mentioned earlier. We wanna make sure that we're doing this the right way um, and that we do have a focus on transparency and we are open to receiving feedback from all elements of the of the community. The standards committee, not only do we have the standards committee, we also have a separate accreditation committee and that committee oversees the entire process. So once the standards committee approves the draft standards, we then brought it to the accreditation committee to offer a second level of approval. And if there was any problems with that, they had to get kicked back to the standards committee and vice versa. So we have uh, those two levels of approval here for our draft standards set that we were proud of. There's a lot of pain points that you've described on, you know, why accreditation, why a business clinic facility should get accreditation. Can you speak to the tangible benefits of that? And maybe currently, you know, improving quality, but then in the future to what you predict to be a benefit of having CASP accreditation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, right? So, I mean, there's the whole kumbaya, like we all need to come together and support quality for the field, which is clearly very, very important. And there is something certainly to be said that, you know, all ships rise with the tide. And so, for example, if we all support quality standards, and that probably means we're all going to have better providers to be able to choose and hire from, right? So if we if we support these types of measures. I think with accreditation, obviously, we can be used to continuously improve the value of ABA services and address those threats to quality that we were talking about earlier. But I think it also offers numerous advantages to stakeholders. And so, and 
those benefits can be broken down into a few different categories. I think one of those categories is accountability. And so ACQ will have an important accountability function. Our goal here is to create a transparent process um, and have benchmarking activities. And through our review process, we'll be able to share information in terms of where the field's at. Moreover, uh, we're going to give organizations an opportunity to public sh publicly share their status as a quality provider using seals of approval. Uh, additionally, uh, we're going to use accreditation as a form of recognition, uh, which is sometimes required or recognized by regulators or payers. We'll use our complaint process to give stakeholders a forum to share their grievances, and we'll use our audit system to ensure organizational compliance during the accreditation cycle. There's an educational function here that I think is also important. So feedback loops will help address deficiencies and identify best practices for organizations applying for accreditation. Moreover, stakeholders and those trainings will help inform patients, payers, providers, and others about our work and how the standards can be, can be achieved. Uh, we have clinical benefits. So uh, we can promote professional oversight by mandating professional credentials, education, and experience requirements. We'll look to standard, standardize components of ABA, healthcare services, and related activities, which I think is desperately needed in some of the areas that we, we work in. And then we can encourage the use of evidence-based clinical pathways and other practices. There's performance benefits as well. So we can seek to improve efficiencies in the services that we're offering, providing cost-effective mechanisms to streamline clinical and business workflows. I think that's going to be a big one and a big benefit of folks running through the accreditation process. We can also help to guide applicants on how to identify and implement innovative practices and support value-based purchasing by promoting outcome measurement and performance improvement. And then finally, there's some benefits related to you know, how accreditation can help the business side of things. And so we can support good governance uh, by, by promoting standards related to leadership, ethics, and business continuity, um, identify and mitigate risk to applicants and other stakeholders, and support workflow management by providing an avenue to document key workflows and quality assurance activities. So I think those are some of the high-level stuff that accreditation can do. One of the things to consider, too, with our own accreditation program is that it, you know, we're new. We're working on that first, first set of standards. And so we're looking forward to launching and then identifying other value points. Um, and that's actually one of the pieces of feedback we're collecting from folks in our public comment is, what value do you see in accreditation? How, how could we make this important and relevant to your organization? I think that's a really important next step too. I, re I really like that value component and really seeing what those actually seeking out the accreditation are anticipating or wanting. So then what is being built is actually solving those direct issues. Can you also just kind of lay out the future process of CASP accreditation? Like how long does it take, the steps within it, how much it's going to cost, anything that you can currently speak to? I know some things are currently still in development, but just looking forward. Great question. And, and I'm receiving these questions a lot, especially as we get closer to launch, right? Like how much is accreditation going to cost? How long is it going to last for? You know, which organizations can apply for accreditation? All excellent questions and all, all questions that we have uh, preliminary answers to that have not yet been approved. And so basically what's happened is, you know, we've had a large focus here in kind of the standards development piece. And what we're working on as well is we're working on what the evaluation methodology we're going to use when we actually work with organizations. So, you know, as a nonprofit accreditation program, you know, our goal here is to keep costs reasonable. We want to make sure that we are competitive and we are not trying to price folks out of accreditation, right? So our goal is not to make money here. Our goal is to 
promote and push for quality services. And so in terms of the fee schedule, there's a lot of variables that would go into that. And so as we're still playing around with some of those ideas in terms of what that evaluation methodology would look like, those types of activities would feed into how much the uh, ACQ would need to charge for its services. Now, that being said, we have a, a very strong commitment to ensuring that we do it right and that we do it in a way that, you know, is that organizations of all sizes can afford, right? And that actually makes sense for them. And so we are, we are certainly committed to that. So obviously there is there's another accreditation out there with through BHCOE. Um, and I know CASP is developing yours now, and you've mentioned a lot of things that are great about what CASP is doing, and I really appreciate that. So should an organization get both accreditations? So I, I guess first off, I would I you know I applaud anyone that is promoting quality services. I don't care who you are, and so that's fantastic. And with regards to your question here, you're probably not going to like my answer, but my opinion on that is I believe organizations should decide on their own whether to pursue accreditation with ACQ or with another body. What I do believe is that if our field is up is to live up to its promise to use our science to change lives, then all of us need to support quality standards designed to raise the bar for everyone. Now, for ACQ, we believe these standards that the field sh should support should come from a mission-driven nonprofit organization that's backed by a publicly known and trusted entity like CASP. That seems like a natural place for those standards to come from. The other thing to mention here is that if our community does not take an active role in supporting standards developed within our community, then decisions about quality are going to be made for us by other sources who may have entanglements with financial interests from unknown parties. And so here's the thing, accreditation and these verifications, this is happening whether we want it to or not. This is coming down the pipeline. And so really, I think what it comes down to is which organization does your group want to support in terms of coming up with those standards that the field should follow? I would also say this at, you know, CAS establishment of ACQ, it is a natural extension of our previous and current work ensuring access to quality ABA services. The CAS is an organization, it's a trade association um, that has nonprofit and for-profit member agencies that serve more than 100,000 children and adults with autism, right? So we have, I think, over 250, maybe almost 300 organizations or so, which is really good representation, right? And so we represent the autism provider community at large to the nation, including government, payers, and the general public. And I would also be remiss if I didn't mention the role that the my colleagues uh, the uh, on the CAS staff, that they've played in ensuring families have access to ABA services. And I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know, but Laura Unum, Mike Wasmer, and Judith Ursetti, they all worked for Autism Speaks before joining CAS, and they spent over a decade working on autism insurance reform. And quite frankly, they're the reason, one of the main reasons why all of us have jobs today. And so that explosion in growth there with our field can be directly traced, I think, back to those efforts. And so this includes that over 4,000% increase in job demand for BCBA since 2010. I guess my question is, if people say, you know, why ACQ? It's like, why not ACQ? Look at who is backing us. And, you know, one of the things I also want to mention here is uh, CAS does own ACQ, but ACQ has the independence uh, around its accreditation activities. So... We, we are not influenced by the CAS board in terms of regards to individual accreditation decisions. Those firewalls are really important for us to be able to set up there to make sure that we have that transparency and openness. The other thing I want to mention is even though uh, ACQ is a CASP organization, our accreditation is open to all organizations, all ABA service provider organizations, regardless of CASP membership set status or business size. There is no, in other words, you do not need to be a CASP member to become eligible to, to apply for ACQ accreditation. That's not a factor for us. 
Great. And there's no doubt the work that those three did at Autism Speaks is why we're all here today. So let's not forget that for sure. So it, it comes down, I think, to your answer, again, really focuses on kind of the profit, nonprofit aspects of the difference between the accreditations. I think you mentioned that as kind of a big player for reasons why you guys believe that CASP is the right way to go. Are there any other major differences between the accreditations that you want to bring up besides that aspect of it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to share, you know, our finalized version of the standards. You can see the draft standard set that we have right now. Obviously, we think we have very high fidelity standards. Um, the evaluation methodology that we're working on, we're quite proud of that. And so we're very excited to share that. My take around accreditation is I'm not interested in banging on people's doors and saying, please get accredited with us. That's not what I'm interested in doing. What I'm interested in doing is I'm interested in saying, look, Here's what we're doing and here's how, here's our process. We're going to offer a lot of transparency and openness. Here are the standards that we're promoting. Here's why accreditation is important. And if you think you, you know, make the cut and your organization wants to have that commitment to offer quality services and can demonstrate that they meet the standards, then apply. And then, you know, we'll do our independent review there. But I don't think my role is to bang on people's doors and say, hey, you know, come, please, please join us. That's not something I'm interested in doing. Instead, we'll present the facts. And if you want to join us, we'd love to have that conversation with you. Was there a consideration at any time to partner with the BHCOE versus going out on your own? Well, not, not since I've arrived. So other accrediting bodies have their own standard set and their own processes. And for us, we created something internally that we think has value to our community. What about the perception of a trade organization practically governing itself and accrediting itself, given the relationship between CASP and the ACQ, and how has CASP addressed that? Excellent question. This was actually, for me, this was a kind of one of those red line issues. And so when we were setting up ACQ, we, you know, we had a lot of conversations in terms of like, what makes the most sense in terms of how we want to set up this nonprofit organization? And ultimately, the CAS board wanted to set it up within CAS, which can work out and, you know, it has worked out. But it's really important there that we have the firewalls in place to ensure that, for example, the individual members of the CAS board are not making decisions about whether an organization gets accredited or not. And so I'm very happy to say that the operating agreement that we have in place that CAST was beholden to and that they just approved has those necessary firewalls in place to make sure that we preserve the integrity of the folks that are developing the standards and the, the group that will be making decisions around accreditation. And so, for example, the accreditation committee, the group that will be making decisions about accreditation, they're not appointed and they don't have any affiliation at all with the CAST board. They're appointed and they're self-perpetuating. They're going to be self-perpetuating there. And so those types of firewalls, I think, are, are essential to make sure that we preserve our independence and, quite frankly, our integrity as an accrediting body. And so I've been happy with the, uh, the firewalls that CASP has fully supported to ensure that we are operating as accreditation bodies should operate. So, Eric, as a provider, how do I know the difference between the different things CASP is doing? There's the organizational guideline we have the practice guideline. We have ACQ now. Can you tell me as a provider what the differences are and which ones I should ascribe to? Sure. We, you know, and internally we've had this conversation too in terms of referencing the using the word guideline versus standard versus you know recommended practice and you know how do we want to talk about that so we have the appropriate differentiation. Practice guidelines, those were inherited from the Behavioral Certification Board. They trusted CASP enough to be able to send them over to transfer ownership over to CASP. Those practice guidelines essentially talk about uh, more uh, kind of an individual provider level and kind of talk about what practice should look like. And it's a document. And so it's a document that kind of describes what that's 
supposed to look like. It's a set of guidelines. The organizational guidelines, you know, those similar to the practice guidelines have been informed by hundreds or tens of, I don't know. I, so I, I, the statistic that Mike gave me was, I think there's 150 national, national and internationally recognized subject matter experts that contributed to the organizational guidelines, which is fantastic. I mean, what a, what a, what a wealth of information there. And the organizational guidelines are a great tool for organizations to once again read about and try to gather more information about the types of practices that might benefit their organizations. So accreditation has a similar goal in the sense that we're all trying to push for quality services. So I think that's kind of the general theme across these resources. But accreditation is important in a very different way in the sense that it's an interactive process, right? So it's not just you uh, having a document in front of you and you know changing your practice. It's, it's inviting an independent body to come in and see if you are, if your practices do match the standards that are set by that independent body. And so there's that, that level of interactivity there. Uh, and that accountability that is not found in the practice guidelines and the organizational guidelines, nor should it. That's not their function there. Eric, can I come back to the response that, that you made? And I totally appreciate that, like your role and ACQ's role is not to go out and like, <laughs> you know, be the drug pusher of accreditation. I, I get that. And as a provider, I want to be really clear that like when organizations are not getting accredited, and uh, we see stats from TRICARE, what, 70% plus of, of kiddos in ABA treatment weren't making meaningful outcomes. We see millions of dollars of audit paybacks from insurance companies. I mean, literally the quality of services in our field is getting diluted. And so I'm going to tell you, ABA providers right now, like, go out and get accredited and find the right accreditation for you. And there, there are many out there in addition to CASP and BHCOE. But Eric, have you seen in, in either other healthcare fields or like what will it take to finally convince our field and providers to get accredited? Is it, is it going to have to be some type of punitive, like huge insurance payback? What's it going to take to actually flip the switch? That, that's a great question. That's kind of the million dollar question here. And I, you know, I want to be clear, I, I certainly want people to pursue accreditation with us. Uh, what I don't want is I don't want people to pursue us because they want to check a box, right? That's kind of my, my point there. So people that are genuinely interested in organizations that are genuinely interested in quality and participating in that process, yes, please, come, come, let's have a conversation. In terms of getting organizations to pursue accreditation, I mean, we're all behavior analysts here, right? I mean, you, the contingencies have to be set right. And so, you know, you identified some already around those, do the financial contingencies need to be set in such a way that there's some impact here? Do we need to limit access to prevent providers from being able to practice unless you're accredited in some way? Or is there other things that need to need to happen in order to push for this? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I think the contingencies need to be put in place and what exactly those are. I mean, financial contingencies obviously play a big role, I think, in the decisions that organizations make. Setting things up so organizations are able to be more efficient with their processes, once again, I think can, can be helpful. But I think also a piece that's really missing here is the educational piece. And I think that is something that our accreditation body can try to fill that gap in, right? I don't know if a lot of people really realize exactly how many problems or how serious the issues are that are going on out there. I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of different stakeholders over the last year. And honestly, I feel like sometimes like I'm a priest in church where I'm hearing people's confessions about, you know, the, the terrible stuff that's going on out there. And there's some general themes that are happening. And what's really nice, though, I, I, and I definitely want to say this, is in, embedded within these are also some wonderful conversations about the amazing work people are doing. And so this is, uh, this is the other flip side of it. And, you know, I've kind of focused a lot on kind of the addressing these quality, quality issues, but also I think recognizing organizations who are doing fantastic work 
is also a major function of accreditation. And so really, you know, when you see folks with that accreditation seal, we want organizations to be like, oh, I know them. You know, they have an excellent reputation. You know, I've talked to people who have worked over there and, you know, or patients that have received services and they're part, if they're part of this group, we probably should be too. This should be something we should be striving for. And so I think maybe to help move the needle, I think the organizations that are doing excellent practices, for them, they may think like, well, you know, we don't really we don't necessarily need an independent body to come in to verify what we're doing because we may think we're doing great. And part of it, I think, is also offering leadership for the rest of the field. And so when you're that organization, when you have a great reputation, kind of going through that process and joining in with accreditation is a great way to kind of model that for other groups out there. I think maybe some leaders there promoting that and looking for that, I think, is very, very helpful. Well said, Eric. You know, is, is one of the roles that CASP and ACQ can play in the future in thinking about those contingencies, like partnering with payers, insurance companies, Medicaid, and requiring accreditation, and in return, who knows if that provides higher reimbursement rates or faster credentialing processes. Is that somewhere out there in the future? Yeah, so it's a very good question. One of the things we have to focus on, especially you know now that we're finalizing our, our first standard set here, is, is creating those value points for organizations, right, to want to pursue accreditation. And, you know, we've already started initiating some conversations with payers about like, what does recognition from you look like for an, an accreditation, you know, from ACQ? Um, and what potential benefits could that offer to organizations that become accredited with us? And so certainly those conversations are happening. And, you know, we're still in the early phases of those because before I can say, hey, come, come buy in with us, I need to be able to say, and here's why, right? And these are the standards that we're promoting here. And so I think one of the ways you um, you get buy-in or recognition from groups, and not even just payers, but you know other other groups that represent stakeholders involved in ABA services, is to make sure that they're included in the conversation. And so I think it's really important, for example, that payers are on our standards committee and that they have a say in you know the standards that we're pushing out for the field. We want to make sure that we have a representative sample that's kind of making these decisions. Now on to some fun stuff. We have some rapid fire questions to ask you. Are you ready? Uh-oh, maybe. Go ahead. <laughs> well, ready or not, here we come. If you were to write a book, what would it be about? Oh, jeez. Maybe outdoor living. <laughs> Jonathan will love that answer. <laughs> you can't see him, but he's doing a dance. What is your superpower? My superpower, I think, is to be able to see all sides of an argument. I think I'm pretty good at that. So when I see people kind of bickering with one another, I think I'm pretty good at kind of identifying you know, the rationales on all sides and analyzing, uh, analyzing from there. What are some of your pet peeves? Pet peeves are probably, these are, I'm not giving you rapid fire answers. You give me rapid fire questions, but, uh, I'm not returning it. You can't, you can't say, uh, questions from the podcast team is your pet peeve, by the way. Can't say that. <laughs> that that actually can I say that? Oh, I, I'll give you my I'll give you my, my my pet peeve is rapid fire questions and being put on the spot publicly. <laughs> That's a good one. That's what we do. I can't promise that we won't do that again. So. <laughs> That's okay. Keep at it. Thank you, Eric, for taking the time to answer our questions and share um, a lot of information with us about the Autism Commission on Quality, ACQ. And for all your hard work as a member of the board, I see just a small sliver of all the work you're doing and the constant ongoing revisions and 
all the collaboration that you've truly brought into this process, for example, forming a DEI focus group and contacting so many different providers within CAS and outside of CAS to inform your process. I'm looking forward to hearing more about this in May and for the big launch. Thank you. Listeners, can you picture an institution that's been around for 100 years? You got to check out Bancroft, who is celebrating their 140-year anniversary next year. Now that is staying power. I got to meet some of the Bancroft team, and they are passionate about what they do. Bancroft is a leading provider of services for individuals living with autism and their families. And Bancroft is advancing treatment and access to resources for the autism community. That's special because you know how important access is to me. So Bancroft accomplishes its mission in a whole variety of ways through research and partnerships, innovation and technology. And in fact, Bancroft's ABA Center of Excellence even provides advanced clinical training. So what does that mean? It means an unparalleled path to improving the quality of life for children and adults with autism throughout their lifespan. To learn more about this wonderful organization, visit bancroft.org forward slash ABA. That's B-A-N-C-R-O-F-T dot org forward slash ABA.